Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. More drugs. The uh, physical dependence models we talked the last time. Um, these different models. Where am I? Here we go. Uh, we talked about the idea of autotoxin, which isn't a real thing. Um, and the idea of autotoxin was found to be lacking not only the idea, but the idea that there actually is autotoxin. There's no such thing as autotoxin. But the idea stuck. The idea that it's a physical. It's something like a drug makes you not sick anymore. This is still a very popular idea. It's okay? a very popular idea about drug-taking behavior. Um, this accounts actually for the abnormality of it. If I say it's a physical thing, and I throw this together with the disease idea, this accounts for the abnormality. So, I, I, And in fact, MDs will do this all the time. In fact, this is probably the most popular approach. That, general public has this, you'll hear MDs talk about this, treatment people, etc. Alright. Originally this was thought to only work with depressants, okay, the idea that you get sick. And in fact, it's almost, as a general rule, the withdrawal symptoms from depressants, from things that slow your nervous system down, are much nastier withdrawal symptoms from stimulants. I'm not saying stimulants don't have withdrawal symptoms, but they're nothing like the withdrawal The withdrawal symptoms from cocaine are nothing like the withdrawal symptoms from alcohol. We'll talk a bit about it. The withdrawal symptoms from... Well, to think about it, usually, very often, withdrawal symptoms are the opposite feeling and behavioral thing that you get from the actual drug. Well, what's the opposite of being stimulated? Sleeping. Not that bad. <clears throat> right? What's the opposite of being sleepy and down? It's, it's being agitated. Well, that, gee, that word even sounds bad. So, originally people thought the only thing would be physically dependent on something was an oppressant. So, Tatum and Sievers added the idea of habituation. And that, that's, this is the habituation like with the poking the aplesia. This is just a habit. Okay? The idea of it being a habit. So stimulants don't produce withdrawal symptoms anything close to the ones that are produced from depressants. I'm not saying they aren't. They there's, there's, there are withdrawal symptoms, yes. Are they even remotely similar at closest intensity? No. If you ingest a lot of caffeine, the worst thing you get in the morning is a headache. Right? That's your withdrawal symptom. The withdrawal symptom of caffeine is headache. And then being cranky. What's the worst? What's the worst withdrawal symptoms from things like, well, from alcohol? You get you, you feel bugs crawling on your skin, you hallucinate. Yeah. Heroin, you get diarrhea, you vomit. Wonderful. That's nothing like you know. Oh, even uh, if you look at cocaine, the withdrawal symptoms tend to be just slowing down. Right. Yes, I know you've seen on TV where people are supposedly they're hooked on coke, man, and they they, don't, they they have the horrible withdrawal symptoms with the chill. That's all really; those are heroin withdrawal symptoms. Those aren't like, they work on they're good TV show, 
but they, they're, they're, they're heroin control symptoms. They're an entirely different thing. And you know, heroin involves things like feeling, uh, you hear people say hot flashes, except that it actually feels like your skin's on fire. That kind of hot flash? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So stimulants not nearly as bad. But we still have dependence. We still, dependence, by the way, is just a, a term with withdrawal symptoms. So if we don't, if it's not physical, we need a new idea. Psychological dependence. I don't like this for a number of reasons. First of all, dividing the psychological and the physical apart to me is silly. Uh, because psychological things must have a physical basis. I mean, unless you take heart, you think it's all happening in your pineal gland because that's where your soul is. So it can't be that, right? I'm glad it makes you day. Um, I don't mind people sharing my questions. So psychological dependence is the notion that you don't need the drug because you're sick, right? Because you have a physical need for it, but you still need it. It's not a physical need anymore, it's a psychological need. We've divided the mind and the body into separate things, and then I start banging my head against the wall. Because I hate that notion. Because the mind and the body, well, see, the mind's in your brain. Hmm, I think that's part of your body. <clears throat> this is when you crave a drug. Oh, man. I'm jonesing, man. That's what people talk that are drug addicts. They say man a lot. Hey, man, I'm jonesing, man. Really need the source of coke, man. It's a little circular. I mean, when are you psychologically dependent? When you crave a drug and don't have any withdrawal symptoms. Why do you crave drugs with withdrawal Because you're psychologically? Oh, damn. Seems a tad circular to me. The biggest problem here is you get continued abuse of drugs that don't produce any withdrawal. Or continued abuse at amounts that don't produce withdrawal. So you get abuse of, people will abuse, people will devote their lives to marijuana. I think many of us know people like this. That's probably why so many people are missing right now. <laughs> No, it isn't. Probably for some. Those people have a drug problem. That's a, that's a problem. It, let's define drug problem as you take drugs at the expense of doing other things that matter. Yeah, that's a pretty good definition. That's a problem. Mar marijuana doesn't have a whole lot of withdrawal symptoms in case of the stupids a little bit the next day. Yeah, please. Since you brought it up. Yeah. Um, the, the, they say that the psychological dependence with marijuana, when people come off it, it's all like uh, crazy emotions. And, but you could bring that back to the brain, which is physical, right? Oh, everything. Yeah, exactly. So I don't like the idea of psychological dependence to begin with just because it's physical anyway. Just because, just because we don't have, we don't know the neural pathways doesn't mean there aren't neural pathways, right? Is, there, is it also magic? Because that's not to say it's magic. And if you can say it's psychological, not physical, at that point, to me, you're saying it's magic. You could, I'm not saying psychological explanations are bad. I, I actually am a psychologist. But 
it's like looking at cognitive mechanisms and then looking at uh, brain mechanisms for memory. The cognitive explanations are great and they're useful and they're, 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 they're good. I like them. But so are the brain mechanisms. But people that make cognitive, say cognitive mechanisms for, for brain, for uh, memory stuff, don't say, and that's a purely psychological, non physical explanation. No, they don't. They just say, because if they did, people would look at them and say, well, but you're an idiot. Right? Because everybody knows it happens up here. So there's that. But the other thing is that we get, like I said, you, you get with abusive drugs that don't really cause withdrawal. What you're getting in that case is addiction without dependence. People can get, there's a, like, for example, LSD is even a better example. LSD has basically no withdrawal symptoms. Right? And there are people that drop acid every day and don't do anything else. That's a drug problem. We want to call that addiction? We can't. Is there dependence? Actually, no. Dependence means, is, all dependence is, is are there withdrawal symptoms? Uh, flashbacks are a real thing, yeah. They're really withdrawal symptoms. No one really knows what they are, and they're uncommon, but they do have. I mean, it's not like it's a, that's not a myth. People do have flashbacks. The best explanation for that is that you're in a very similar situation to what you had when you were tripping. Yeah. Again, see, I use the street lingo, I said tripping, because I'm a hip. I'm hip to the scene, I'm down with the street. My street name, by the way, Dave. <laughs> so, we get things that either have hardly any withdrawal symptoms or very mild ones or none, and we get addiction without dependence. This will probably remind you again, you know, people that really like, I don't know, let's go with playing uh, World Warcraft. They will do this to a point where it looks like an addiction. There are cases in Korea of guys that play StarCraft to the point where they never get up to go pee in 24 hours and they die. Like, that's happening. That's a problem. And it sounds like addictive behavior. Right? There's really no withdrawal. Like, if you're getting sick from, you know, oh man, I just need to play with StarCraft. Feel a little down. They say, man, that's a whole other issue. So, let's understand drug-taking behavior. I got it. Here's a crazy, wacky idea. Let's look at how it works in the brain. Um, the thing is, people used to think you couldn't get animals addicted to drugs. In other words, get them to the point where they have a drug problem. Do, again, we're going to define that as taking drugs at the expense of doing other things. Okay? So, by that definition, by the way, if you get drunk every night and you get up and go to work in the morning and it's not affecting your life, you don't have an alcohol problem by that definition I just used. Okay? So it's good because it means I really don't have one. Um, so you couldn't get animals addicted. They can't get this human disease. And of course, there's no moral problem with drugs or with animals. But it turned out when people were able to put like a catheter into the brain of an animal and have it work for a drug, and this is what Thompson and Schuster did in 1964, they had, uh, it was, this was morphine, and you could get the rats to push a bar to get morphine injected directly into their brains, and they would then do this at the expense, by the way, of eating, of pushing the other bar that involved food, 
they would actually become little rat junkies, <laughs> which was the name of a punk band I was in back in the 70s. Yeah, it's very similar to Deja Vu. So how does this work? This also sounds circular, by the way, because I'm going to say that people take drugs because it feels good. Why do drugs? Because it feels good. What makes you feel good? Drugs. Oh, that's as bad as psychological dependence. But the nice thing is, from the physiology, we can look at the reward circuit. Right? Because reinforcement, those of you guys who took learning with me know that reinforcement, Skinner defined reinforcement as any stimulus that increases the likelihood of behavior. And it is a circular definition. Because any stimulus that increases the likelihood of behavior is reinforcement. What's reinforcement? Any oh, sh there it goes again. But when we know how the brain's field in certain words, how it works, how its reward system works, we can say something that activates the reward system, right, will likely uh, will, will, will be used, whatever the hell it is. So what we have is what's called the dopamine hypothesis, and this is a connection, and it's a dopaminergic circuit between the ventral tegmental area, the VTA, the MFB, the medial forebrain bundle, and the ACC, the nucleus accumbens. So ventral tegmental area, medial forebrain bundle, nucleus accumbens. This circuit, which operates on dopamine, um, when this circuit is fired, you can get a rat to do anything. You directly put a microelectrode right into the rat's brain, and you have it right across probably accumbens. And you take the rat. Now, I could get you right now. I could train a rat, if we had a rat here, to stand right there on its hind legs. Now, I could do that normally with little bits of food. It's getting closer and closer to doing it, and it would take me probably a couple of hours. Or I could do, I could, every time he gets closer to doing what I want, I can give him a little zap of, and, and operate his reward circuit, and it would take about three minutes. This is the reward system. This is what makes you feel good. This is the system that is operated when you eat a meal that you enjoy. This is a system that is operated when you have an orgasm. This is a system that is operated uh, when, when, you, when you watch Breaking Bad, oddly enough. Right? It feels good. It's a good TV show. This is the system that's operated when you take heroin. This is the system that's operated when you drink alcohol, when you smoke cigarettes. This is the system that's operated when you hear a song you like. And if we can directly operate the thing that makes us feel good when we're having an orgasm, yeah, I think we might try that. Right? I've heard, uh, I've known people that have taken heroin, I've, I've, and I've seen people take heroin. The idea of taking heroin to me is a little disturbing. But I've asked people what it's like. They say, it's like your whole body's having an orgasm for 45 minutes. So you think to yourself, you know, if you can clean up that whole heroin subculture, it sounds fun. <laughs> you know, let's go score some. You know, if I didn't have to buy it from Tony Soprano or from the, you know, Hell's Angels, maybe get some and get some clean needles and all that. But no, that's not what I'm going to do. 
if we give morphine right to the paraaqueductal, paraaqueductal ventral gray, which is part of your brain, and it's actually the part where um, there, are, there are opiate receptors there, that's where pain killing happens. Paraaqueductal, para, P-E-R-I, aqueductal, just like aqueduct, gray. If you give morphine there to a rat, it leads to dependence. It leads to the withdrawal symptoms. Morphine directly to the nucleus accumbens does not. Which is an interesting kind of fact because it says that the, 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 the uh, withdrawal symptoms are almost a side effect if you want to look at it that way. So Alexandre has asked on the Twitters, um, so these addictions, are they basically habituation to a higher level of serotonin or dopamine? Well, what happens, and that's when tolerance builds up, you get used to needing more of the drug, your system does. So that's in essence what tolerance is. It's not quite that simple, but in essence, yeah, that's what happens with tolerance, because you need more of the drug to get the same effect. Yeah. Um, Schuster found that rats would work for drugs that don't cause withdrawal. In other words, rat, rat, rats would work for drugs that had no dependence. And they would work for them at the expense of other things. You get rats that had drug problems. Now, it's hard to get rats to take things orally. Uh, very hard, actually. Rats have this characteristic where they don't eat new food. Uh, they're, they're, they only take a little tiny bit of it, etc. So, this is, again, where you use the cannula or catheter injection right into the brain. Uh, that tends to work pretty well. It turns out Pickens and Thompson in 1968 found that drug use followed the laws of learning. Now, I'm not going to go through what that is. That's a whole course. It's called Psych 3306, learning. But drug use follows this pattern. In other words, all drugs are, are another kind of reinforcement, just like, say, food. But there's nothing magical or special about drugs except that they operate your reward system, just like a whole bunch of other things do. So it's nothing magical or special. Some people ask me, so are you saying this is just conditioning? And yes, uh, in fact, that's exactly what I'm saying. That it's the, the drug use. See, so what happens is you take the drug, that's a behavior, and then immediately what happens is you feel good, which makes the behavior more likely. <coughs> this explains so many nice parts of, of, and weird parts of drug use. It explains the paradox of positive and negative effects of drugs. Positive just meaning it feels good. But the negative effects, think about drug taking. Drug taking, a lot of times, is quite stupid. Right? In the long term, how many, and no, I bet nobody here has ever in their life had a hangover. Some of you, some of you apparently are hungover right now. Um, <laughs> so, you ever have this? You wake up, and you say to yourself, I am never drinking again. I drink too much. I feel sick. I am never drinking again. Then a text message comes in about 5 o'clock at night, and his friends say, you want to go drink? And you go, yeah, what the hell? <laughs> and you go out again. 
and you drink again. It happens to everybody. Or, and you can think about this, people that take heroin aren't stupid necessarily. I think it's probably more stupid ones, but, but they take care of it. They know the next day they'll have withdrawal. But it's like learning works that the thing that immediately follows the behavior is what maintains it. Right? Not the thing that happens later. Right? If cigarettes immediately made you have cancer, people like suck on a butt, it's like, oh, Christ, I got cancer. <laughs> you and people wouldn't be smoking. Right? There's very few people out there left that go, you know, really, these things, the science is still up in the air. No. No, it's not. It's, cigarettes are bad for you. When you use it directed, cigarettes kill them. But they kill over a very long period of time. So people smoke. Because smoking feels good. I used to smoke. Oh, it's the greatest thing in the world. Also, it makes you look cool and grown up and everybody else is doing it. But nothing? No? So, so it explains that. It explains this positive and negative effects. Because that's quite a paradox when you think about it. And a lot of times, people have never taken drugs at all before say, well, how can you do that? You know you're going to feel like shit in the morning. Yeah, but you feel pretty good right now. And that's what maintains behavior is the immediate consequence. Right? So that's what means. So again, it's just conditioning. But we know how the reinforcement part works in the brain. The choice in drug taking depends on the other available reinforcers. It actually follows the matching law, and I'm not going to go into what that is. Well, basically, it, it just says that the more reinforcing something is, the more likely you are to do it. And if some, one thing is twice as reinforcing as something else, you'll do those two things in a two-to-one ratio. So it actually follows the matching law. It's interesting in that this model also explains sort of sociological differences. Why do more poor people have drug problems than rich people? Because they have fewer things in their life that are reinforcing Right? If you have no money, no disposable income, and you have very little, so you can't buy stuff, you can't buy good stuff. Right? People wonder things like, oh, you, got, you see those people on welfare? They're all stupid. You know what they do? They all go and they, they, they buy a beer and cigarettes. Because that's the only fun they have. Not everybody in welfare is like that. I'm saying you get more people with drug problems that are poorer. And it's like that no matter where you go, no matter what the drug. Why do you think you think isolated communities, people sniffing gasoline when they're seven years old, you think, my God, that's screwed up. What's wrong? What's wrong is there's nothing else that feels good there. Right? So it explains the sociological, the physical, the, the, the neuroscience, the psycho. This is good. When I say this is good, I don't mean seven-year-olds huffing gasoline. I want to make that perfectly clear. That's bad. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. This see that, that's the that's the, the university librarian is participating in our class somehow. <laughs> I think that's excellent. By the way, if you want to hear more of Ken and me, tangentialconvergence.com, our podcast. Um, we can 
classified drugs, and they kind of overlap. They kind of overlap. So we can talk about sedative hypnotics. A sedative hypnotic is a drug that puts you to sleep. Okay, so Valium, right? So benzodiazepines, barbiturates, those kind of drugs. Um, alcohol is its own category. And it's delicious. Um, antipsychotics, pretty clear what those do. They stop you from having schizophrenia. Well, they don't stop having They control the symptoms. Antidepressants control the, the symptoms of depression. Narcotic analgesics are things that kill pain. They kill pain and they put you to, out. They slow you down. Psychomotor stimulants are things like things that uh, stimulate, make your uh, get faster neural firing, and also uh, your motor system works more quickly. That's things like cocaine, speed, meth. Nicotine, again, its own category. Caffeine, uh, pretty much its own category. There are other, are other molecules called methylxanthines that are similar to ca caffeine, but they're not really. Uh, they, they don't exist in nearly the, 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 the concentration out there that caffeine does. Hallucinogenics are things like uh, LSD, psilocybin. These are things that their main effect is giving you a hallucination. By the way, very hard to get an animal to take that. Um, because animals don't... So why do we find it reinforcing? Because some people enjoy hallucinating. Right? They enjoy seeing weird stuff in the world. Most, you, know, you look at your dog, your dog doesn't want to open the doors of perception, man. <laughs> it's a dog. Right? And then marijuana, THC, is its own category as well. There is some overlap with these things. There is some overlap. What's a good reply? No, no, but I got to think something from 2001: A Space Odyssey. We got to. What a horrible hive mind you are! So that's classification of them. And again, there's some overlap there. Okay, let's look at how different drugs work. So sedatives, they work like this. They modify the effect of GABA. This shouldn't surprise you. They modify the effect of GABA. GABA lets chlorine ions, opens a chlorine ion channel. That's what GABA does. <laughs> Not a sodium ion channel, a chlorine ion channel. So something that's going to slow you down is going to open chlorine ion channel, make the... Uh, 
sell a little harder fire. So what they're, what's called positive GABA modulators. I'm saying the same thing over and over again. Barbiturates themselves can actually open an ion channel acting by themselves at a high enough concentration. So this is a, a GABA receptor. Okay, this is basically, here we have what's called a benzodiazepine receptor. This is a receptor for benzodiazepine. That was the first thing we talked about that's like Valium, okay, diazepam. Then we have a receptor here, and this one's for barbiturate. And we have a GABA receptor here. And if the GABA receptor, the binding of GABA to the GABA receptor, you end up opening a chlorine ion channel. Okay? And opening a chlorine ion channel. Now, the barbiturate receptor makes this more effective. Okay? Makes it easier for the binding of GABA to this receptor. The barbiturate receptor, because there's a solid one here, what that's saying is that actually the barbiturate receptor can open the chlorine ion channel by itself. You can now see how dangerous this, these drugs can be. This is something, if it makes it get to the point where you can't make a whole bunch of your neurons fire, you might stop, I don't know, breathing. Your heart might stop beating. These are pretty important things. Because, you know, you need the breathing. You need to breathe. Questions about these sedatives and how they work there? Dave, are you saying that they can't open by themselves without Barbiturates by themselves can open the point of energy. Barbiturates are more dangerous than yeah. benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines can just make it easier for it to open. <laughs> okay. So they, they modulate it, but barbitur barbiturates do that too, but in high enough concentrations, um, they can cause the chlorine ion to open which is, as you can see, pretty damn dangerous. Right. Um, GABA works on its own, but the sediment itself, like a barbiturate or a benzodiazepine, can also open. Benzodiazepine makes it easier for GABA to work. <coughs> barbiturate does that too, but also with high enough concentrations. It opens the chlorine range. Okay. Questions? Okay. Alcohol. Alcohol, even though it's the reason we have civilization, and it is, by the way, there's a very reasonable theory that says the reason we stopped being hunter-gatherers, the reason we stopped being hunter-gatherers and, and, and started domesticating plants was so we could grow grain to make beer. And we know this by looking at world's oldest beer recipe, which is from the city of Ur, which is where Baghdad is today, which is the first place people settled. First set of people that stopped, it was around Baghdad, and Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Cradle of civilization, right? So they stopped, and they, people always say they stopped because they're cultivating grain to make bread. But when you read the oldest 
recipe known to man, which is the, an ode to the brewing goddess Nikasi. They talk about making a kind of bread. You think, oh, it's a bread recipe. I stopped to make bread. Except when you make, if you follow the recipe to make the bread, you make bricks. You can't eat it. It's, it's made with honey and barley and millet. And you bake it. And it is so hard that you break your teeth if you try to eat it. What use is that? Well, you take this bread called babir, and you put it in, and it says this in the recipe for the, for the beer, you put it in water, and you let it start to bubble because of the wild yeast in the air, and it makes beer. The reason people stopped being hunter-gatherers was because we wanted to drink beer. And I think that's pretty damn cool. And in fact, there was a paper in Nature in about, ni- no, sorry, Science, in about 1994, where they followed the recipe and they had wild yeasts that were in uh, starters for, uh, bread starters from bakeries from that region that had been around for a couple of thousand years and they actually brewed the stuff. It was brewed by the Anchor Brewing Company of San Francisco and um, it's apparently horrible, but you can do it. <laughs> and then there was one where they actually, another paper where they cultured yeast out of jars that were like 8,000 years old they were beer jars, and they actually cultured the yeast. They found the DNA, cloned it, made yeast, and then they made beer. Science is fun. <laughs> so it's the thing we've been ingesting longer than anything. It's the thing that probably caused us to not be hunter-gatherers anymore. Well, we all know really what caused it was when the, when, uh, the alliance of the rebel Cylons and the remaining humans arrived on this earth. <laughs> I just finished watching Battlestar Galactica again. It's one of those things I do about every six months. Do your job. So, we, the weird thing is we don't understand alcohol too well. Well, we know it does a few things. It depresses the function of an ion channel in a glutamate receptor. No. Well, glutamate is the universally excitatory neurotransmitter. It's the most common neurotransmitter in the brain. And this is slowing down the function of that glutamate ion channel, that ion channel in the glutamate receptor. Okay. So it's a negative glutamate modulator. You see that? After chronic use of alcohol, and I'm talking professional use here. This is skip the Olympics Go Pro. This is this is rye on your Fruit Loops in the morning. <laughs> this is not messing around. And not good rye either. That cheap LCBO brand. By that kind of alcohol, you're looking, oh, look, this one just says rye on it. And it just says LCBO. I think it's just stuff they spilled on the floor and bottled. It's not, it's cooking rye. Um, The brain kind of adjusts, basically making more glutamate available. This actually explains a lot of the really nasty side effects, withdrawal symptoms of alcohol. If you've had a hangover, that's a really small version of what alcohol withdrawal is like. People that drink to excess all the time have alcohol withdrawal that's exceedingly unpleasant. And there's a cure for it. It's more liquor. It's like Mr. Leahy on the Trailer Park Boys. By the way, he's great on Twitter. He's very fun. So that might be the cause of withdrawal symptoms. Um, we also know this because there's a drug called RD, uh, sorry, RO154513, which is an al- seems to be an alcohol antagonist. And how does it work? Um, this drug itself 
increases the function of glutamate. Sorry, decreases the function of glutamate receptors just like, no, I get that backwards. Yeah, it increases the function of the ion channel in the glutamate receptors. In other words, it seems to block the effect of alcohol. Now, this is not, so this is the closest thing we have right now. You know, like you see like a James Bond thing and he just takes some pill and he doesn't get drunk when he's drinking. Which to me, it seems, defeats the purpose. Ding, 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 ding. Second time I've talked about James Bond today. Two glasses in a row. Not sure why. Not even a big Bond fan. So alcohol is interesting in that way. It's probably glutamate based. It's probably also got something to do with GABA because it's so, such a depressant. One of the things about alcohol that's interesting is alcohol, unlike every other drug we measure in half-life except for alcohol, alcohol is excreted at a constant rate. This explains why with alcohol, the next day you can still be drunk even though you don't feel drunk. So it still will affect your reaction times, things like that. So driving with a hangover is almost as dangerous as driving drunk. These are things you shouldn't do. Typically, all the drugs I'm going to talk about here, please don't drive. And if you're going to do it, do it somewhere where I don't know anybody. So it doesn't affect me in any way. So I'm talking other countries. So you're going to drive drunk, you go to, I don't know where. There's people I know that have been to Cuba, might be there on holiday. Go to, uh, God, I'm trying to think of anywhere. Go to Antarctica and drive a snowmobile drunk. If you want to do that, that's fine with me. But please don't have anybody who cares about you. Just don't drive drunk. Don't be an idiot. And I do better when I'm drunk. I had a friend that actually said that. He had just got, we actually, I knocked him down and my other friend took his keys. We said, why would you do that? Because he just got out of jail six months earlier and had his license suspended for six months, finally got his key, his license back, and he was going to drive drunk. So we knocked him over and took his keys. He felt like a bit of a hero when you got to beat a guy up, so it was kind of cool. <laughs> okay, antipsychotics, how do they work? Well, okay, schizophrenia, as we're talking about here, we're trying to block the, the symptoms of schizophrenia, that's things like hallucinations, and they're auditory almost always, um, even though, okay, you know in the movie A Beautiful Mind, spoiler alert, he's schizophrenic. It's a, it's a 20 freaking year old movie. If you haven't seen it yet, that's your own fault. I wrecked it for you. But he's schizophrenic and he's got auditory, not he's got visual hallucinations. Well, well, movies are always true. Russell Crowe wouldn't lie to me. Those were visual, yeah, but auditory, they asked um, Ron Howard, who directed that movie, why did you use um, visual hallucinations? When in his book, he talks about being auditory, he said, Visual hallucinations don't get filmed there. They don't show up on film that well. So they're almost always auditory. You hear voices. Right? And it's paranoid schizophrenia very often, so it's like things like you hear about how the communists are getting together with, I don't know, well, usually the Jews are thrown in there because everybody thinks it's a conspiracy. And then you throw in, I don't know, some the satellites controlling your thoughts. Yep, just like that. <laughs> yep, that kind of thing. And if you've ever seen schizophrenia, it's really scary. It's a scary thing to see. When I was a postdoc, there was another postdoc in the lab, and he, he was schizophrenic. 
We didn't know at first. We just thought he was Russian. <laughs> well, he was. He was Russian. This Russian guy. It was just after the wall fell, and this guy wants to come to our lab. And it's like, that's cool. You know? So we showed this guy's name. We'll call him Dimitri. But that's not his name. I am protecting him. So Dimitri, again, not his name, shows up, and he's uh, working in the lab. And he... Uh, there was another lab, he's an old guy, he was 38 years old. All the time seemed to me, I was 25, 26. So, he says, uh, he hardly speaks any English, this is not his fault, he's born in Russia. I'm sorry, Soviet, in Soviet Russia, that's where he was born. And he ends up, there's a young woman in the lab next door, she's like 23 years old, and she's quite nice looking, and he thinks that it's his girlfriend. She was nice to him once. And of course, you think to yourself, well, the guy's in a foreign country, blah, blah. This happens a lot with schizophrenia. You get to explain it away. So we, we thought, oh, he's just confused. And he started, like, you know, showing up, sitting in her office, in the lab. So he says to me one day, he comes to my office, and also, by the way, he didn't bathe, which we thought was a cultural thing, uh, but it actually turns out it's often a symptom of schizophrenia. It is an official one, but it's often a symptom. So he comes to, and I kind of run the lab, so he comes to my office and I'm about to say, like everybody stay with him because he's still that bad. And I was going to hand him some deodorant and say, here's a lesson. In Canada, this is how it works. <laughs> you know, sometimes he maybe didn't know. I thought it was a cultural thing. So he comes and goes, David, we have a problem. I said, yeah, we do. And I reach into my drawer to get the thing of deodorant I bought. <laughs> and he goes, you broke me with Angela. Not her name. I said, I did what with a who now? <laughs> I, uh, I broke it. You broke it. I heard your thoughts through a wall. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I think he just said he heard my thoughts through a wall. <laughs> but maybe, again, guy is a foreign language, maybe he means he heard me say something. I said, look, I don't even really know her, but I'll go talk to her. If you think... There's a thing. So I went and talked to her and I said, look, I'm going to ask you a question and this is, like, I don't really know you, but if she says, I know what you're talking about. No, you've never talked. I said, good, okay. I said, I've, I've been pleasant though, right? You know? <laughs> but I've never said anything more than two words to you other than like, hello, you know? So he comes to me later and I'm holding a pigeon and I'm going to put it in a box, a skinner box. And he says, when are we having a discussion? Me or Angela? I said, we aren't, man. He said, why not? I said, because you should probably just take this like a man. That's not your girlfriend. He says, well, you are part of it. <laughs> what does that? And I'm like, oh, God. He's schizophrenic. That's when it totally hit me. It's like when he said I was part of it. It's like, oh, I'm part of a conspiracy. And that's what I, I put them here. I took the bird. I took it back to its home cage. <laughs> I took off my lab coat. I ran down to the computer lab. We didn't all have computers in our labs back then, in our offices. And I sent an email to a friend of mine in, in engineering, doing a PhD in engineering at Western. And I just said, we should go to the grad club now. And we went drinking at 11.30 in the morning, because I was, I was just so freaked out. He then showed up at a guy, the guy whose who's lab it was. He showed up at his house that night, just looking in the back window. Saying, I know you can see through my clothes because I have a chip implanted in the head. <laughs> because I am immigrant. <laughs> That's what schizophrenia is. And as funny as I can tell the story now, it sounds kind of funny. It was sad, 
and also exceedingly disturbing. Okay? So this isn't like, you'll hear people say, oh, I see, man, all you're doing is you're labeling the eccentric. People that don't fit in, man. I don't know, I'm going with that man thing there. <laughs> As all you're doing is labeling them. And you know, label is disabled. Anyway, first of all, people that say things like that are stupid. Secondly, this is a real problem. This is, and that behavior I'm telling you about, all that stuff is true, except I've changed the name to protect the innocent. Because you know what? When I give you an antipsychotic drug, it blocks dopamine receptors. Specifically, it blocks a D2 receptors, four kinds of, well, four major kinds of dopamine receptors. You can probably guess their names, D1, D2, D3, D4. It blocks D2 receptors. And guess what? All that behavior goes away. So if you're saying that me saying you're eccentric and weird has made you have more D2 receptors, more dopamine, I think you're telling me I have a lot more power than I actually do. There's actually a direct relationship between D2 binding effectiveness and the ED50 of antipsychotic drugs. The correlation is almost 1.0. Nothing has a correlation to 1.0. It doesn't happen in life sciences. That's what happens in physics and chemistry. Right? It doesn't happen in biology and psychology. It does here. It's a dopamine problem. They got too much. Uh, these drugs also block acetylcholine, serotonin, and histamine. So you can see they have side effects. It's hard to, nobody's engineered yet a drug that only blocks these two D2 receptors and nothing else. That'll come. They alter GABA and peptides too, these drugs. Uh, it's interesting, I mentioned histamine there. The first antipsychotic drugs, the first attempt to use drugs to control schizophrenia uh, was by a French uh, uh, physician named Lavoie, and he used antihistamines. And he got people that, were, that had psychotic symptoms, they had fewer psychotic symptoms, um, and also, now antihistamines also do, a, do something to D2 receptors. They do walk a little bit, uh, but so you had a whole lot of uh, French... Uh, 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 schizophrenics that suddenly had clear noses, but they were very drowsy because they were all on antihistamines. Thank you. Nothing? I went all that way for now, all that? Okay. Long trip. Uh, they've also, it also, they also block norepinephrine receptors, and they cause an increase in norepinephrine synthesis, which is kind of a six and one half dozen, they have to kind of balance each other out. This is the correlation between D2 binding efficacy and LD or ED50 for antipsychotic drugs. Note the pretty straight line. The world doesn't work like that in life sciences. It's never that straight. It's never beautiful. Like, oh, look, as one goes up, the other one goes up. You would think I made this data up. But I did not. I scanned it from a textbook. <laughs> I should tell you it's a dopamine issue. No, it's because you're labeling people. Shut up. Go read a science book. Or just any book. All right. Key brain regions that <coughs> psychotics work on are uh, well, the dopamine system, the mesolimbic dopamine system, which is another name for that reward system. Okay? Um, they work in the nigrostriatal area. 
Uh, remember I talked about nigrostratum? That's that area that when you stain it with silver nitrate, it stains with black and white stripes. Um, and not enough dopamine is what? It's like Parkinson's diseases. You actually end up with Parkinson-like symptoms um, when you give people too much of an antipsychotic if the dose is too high. There are atypical antipsychotics. It's a new second-generation antipsychotics that don't seem to have an effect here, and they don't have nearly <coughs> as many side effects. They're also much more expensive to, to give, so they, they aren't usually the first choice. Um, also drugs that block cholinergic receptors, that's acetylcholine receptors, uh, stop Parkinsonian symptoms, and so do atypicals. So in other words, if these drugs, the atypical antipsychotics, unlike the typical ones, don't seem to lead to these Parkinson disease-like symptoms. Um, antipsychotic drugs were an amazing thing. When they came out in the 1950s, suddenly psychiatric hospitals closed because there was no more customers. Um, they didn't need any more patients. They didn't have any more patients because you could control this disease, this disorder, whatever you want to call it, um, with drugs. And people can lead more or less a normal-ish life on these drugs. Um, I will say, however, if they block the mesolipid dopamine system, the reward system, do you think it's easy to get people to take these drugs? Probably not, right? It would be very hard to take antipsychotic drugs to get people to maintain taking them because they're making it so their life has no joy anymore. Their sex drives drop, their appetites go away, etc. And they just sleep. Does that sound like fun? Not really. So what you get a lot of times, and in fact you see this in the movie A Beautiful Mind, is that now and then he goes for a day without taking his drugs. Because it allows him to enjoy himself a little bit. We have to find something that targets these receptors but doesn't completely shut down the reward system. And it may be the case that that's the problem is that the reward system is too active anyway. Alright. Questions about that stuff? Okay, antidepressants. How do antidepressants work? Well, the name MAOIs, you might hear this, right? You're watching a TV show and they have a drug ad. They also cause early history. MAOI stands for monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Monoamines are what? Well, let's see. Dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, serotonin. How are they broken down? They're broken down by an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. Anything most of you in the biology students know this, anything that ends in A's is, a, is an enzyme. So it breaks down monoamines. So the idea of how these work is that if we inhibit the enzyme monoamine oxidase, it can't break down monoamines, so there are more monoamines in the system. Does that make sense? Okay. Good. Thank you for seeing so. Okay. So, monoamines, that's a whole bunch of neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, or There's a notion that depression is caused by not enough of those neurotransmitters. So how are we going to make more of those neurotransmitters available to the system? 
Well, we could give you those neurotransmitters because it worked that way across the blood-brain barrier. What we could do, however, is look at how the, that, those neurotransmitters are broken down. They're broken down by an endpoint. One of the steps in breaking them down is an enzyme called monoamine oxidase. Well, if that breaks it down, why don't we stop it? So we'll inhibit monoamine oxidase so it can't work as well anymore. And now you end up with more monoamines because they don't get broken down because the stuff that breaks it down isn't working anymore. So that's how monoamine oxidase inhibitors work. So it's pretty obvious by their name how they work. Um, tricyclic antidepressants. They block the reuptake of monoamines. Again, just another way of making more monoamines available to the system. Whoops. SSRIs are obvious how they work. Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So tricyclics block all monoamines from being uh, reuptaken. Um, SSRIs just block the reuptake of serotonin. And this is the SSRIs, the classic example here is, of course, fluoxetine or Prozac. Now, the effects, these physiological effects are immediate. You take the pill and it starts working. Physiological. So it's, it inhibits monoamine oxidase or it blocks reuptake of monoamines or it blocks reuptake of serotonin. However, the antidepressant effect itself that happens can take days or even weeks. Whereas with antipsychotics, you're hearing voices and being paranoid, I can give you some chlorpromazine and it goes away. This, it's not like you can take an antidepressant and you're not depressed anymore right away. It takes days or weeks. I should tell you something. I should tell you it's not just about serotonin or not just about monoamines. There's something else going on. What the neurochemistry of Depressants is, we have like, sorry, what the neurochemistry depressant depression is, we haven't figured that out yet. And remember, depression isn't just feeling sad. It's being basically completely flat. Right? You can't get out of bed. You don't think anything you do is right. Most people that are actually really have major depressive disorder and are in the throes of depression, they aren't in danger to kill themselves. You know why? Because they're pretty sure they'll screw it up. They're pretty sure they'll screw it up. It's when the antidepressants start working. It's when the antidepressants start working that you should get be more concerned. Then there's, on the other side of depression, there's, there's, there's mania. So it's bipolar disorder, you know, so the other end of it is mania. And mania involves 
Uh, it's the opposite of depression. It's go, go, go. It's an inflated sense of well-being, an inflated sense of yourself. Uh, it also involves a lot of, and that sounds fun. That sounds like some fun person to be around. They tend to max out their credit cards buying drinks for everybody in a bar. I uh, tell you, tell them, no, dude, that's a bad idea. They don't like being challenged very much. Okay. So the way this is controlled, happily, is controlled by uh, a simple salt, lithium chloride. So capsules of lithium chloride. How? I don't know. No one really knows how lithium chloride works. It works. It works really well, by the way. But how does it work? I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's all people got. It's like, I don't know. <laughs> but it works. So how did they figure out that it worked? They just were trying random things? No, I, I don't honestly know the answer to that. No idea. Let's pretend, yes. <laughs> but let's pretend that someone was playing with lithium, but they were manic. And then they ate it. And then as it was burning in their mouth, because it's one of those metals, they stopped eating that. <laughs> that's, let's pretend that's what happened. Because I don't really know. I don't know the answer to that. You think about lithium, and I'll end on this. Um, it's really, really, really dangerous. The, uh, the therapeutic index of lithium is like two and a half. So with, with Prozac, for example, if you miss a dose... It might say take two. With lithium, you don't take two. Because uh, you could die. Okay? Uh, and lithium poisoning, by the way, very unpleasant way to die. I actually watched somebody have lithium poisoning once, a student of mine, back in Newfoundland, and they came up to me and he said, You know a lot about drugs? I said, Yes. And he said, So I just started taking lithium for bipolar. I said, Okay, sure, is it working? He said, Yeah, but I took two. And I looked at him as he was turning green, and I said, with me, son. We're calling an ambulance. <laughs> he was okay, and he ended up getting an 85 in intro site. But I mean, and he had never had it controlled before, so it was nice to see. But it's dangerous. And when you first go on lithium, you are getting blood work done every couple of days for a few months, so they get the, exactly the right dose, so you know you don't die. And on that strange note, I will see you next Monday. No, Tuesday. Next Tuesday. I'll see you Tuesday. No class Thursday. I will be giving a talk, the talk you guys all help me with, and I will mention you all by name.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.